This is the Behind the Line podcast, and this is Pacific Northwest Headline News for Monday, May 16th, 2022. And the abortion story rolls on. I hate to say it before I get into the story, but uh, I truly believe this whole abortion thing is a giant distraction. Constantly on the news, droning about this, they're getting people all riled up. And in the meantime, we've got food shortages, gas shortages, a potential war in Europe, or worse. All these other things going on, and you all are just focusing on what the media wants to put in your face all the time. Anyway, Washington State could see a 385% increase in patients seeking an abortion if Roe versus Wade is overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, according to a study released by the Guttmacher Institute, with most potentially coming from neighboring Idaho due to its trigger law to ban abortion. Idaho's trigger law passed in 2020 and signed into law by current Governor Brad Little would ban all abortions except in cases of rape, incest, or to protect the life of the mother. Good for you, Idaho. That law would take effect 30 days after the final U.S. Supreme Court decision. The, according to the Guttmacher Institute, in the case of a total ban, the number of patients of reproductive age, 15 to 49, whose nearest provider would be in Washington, would increase from 110,000 to 510,000. 230,000 is the maximum number of patients who may travel across state lines from Idaho to seek an abortion. 230,000 people just from Idaho? Come on. In March, Governor Jay Inslee signed a bill prohibiting legal action against people seeking an abortion or anyone who helps them. The bill signing came just days after the legislature in Idaho approved a bill that allows lawsuits by potential family members to enforce a ban or on abortions performed after six weeks of pregnancy. Governor Little signed the bill a week later. Washington's measure, which takes effect in June, prohibits the state from taking any action against an individual seeking to end their pregnancy or for assisting someone who is pregnant in obtaining an abortion. All this work to kill babies, it makes no sense. 35 teachers in the Marysville School District received layoff notices last week after voters rejected levy measures that would have funded 14 to 18% of the district's overall budget. The district is also not replacing retiring teachers and non-continuing staff. The educational programs and operation levy and the technology and capitals project levy failed at the polls in February and April, with both receiving less than 50% of votes to accept. The district is now assessing its budget for the upcoming school year, and it looks to cut spending by $13.5 million. Other possible reductions in the budget include cuts to athletics, extracurricular activities, and reduced bus routes and additional staff layoffs. People are sick and tired of paying these high taxes for these crappy public school systems in this state. And here's the other problem. The state has dictated all kinds of rules and requirements to these schools that they have, the schools have to pay for, not the state. But if the schools aren't in compliance, then they don't get any state money. And they've gotten themselves into a position where they have to have state money. One of the biggest problems I see 
is these requirements to have one-on-ones. So you've got kids who have behavioral problems or mental problems or whatever. The schools are supposed to provide and pay for a staff member to be with that student all day long. This is taking away from the kids who are actually benefiting from being at school. I'm sorry to say you may not want to hear that, but that is just the plain truth. And the schools are wasting lots and lots of money on these one-on-ones for these kids who get little to no benefit from being at school other than they're out of their parents' hair or the school is used as a daycare. Public school systems should not be daycare. And if the state wants to enforce those requirements on school districts, then the state should be paying for those one-on-ones, not the school districts. Period. Also, the fact that these schools are required to pay for transportation for kids that move out of the district so that uh, the kids can continue to go to the same school for continuity and all that. Uh, You know, we never had that benefit when we were little. And I don't think they need to be paying for stuff like that. If the parents choose to move, then I guess they choose to put their kids in another school district. School districts shouldn't be paying to transport kids across county lines or, you know, miles and miles and miles across different cities to get them back to a school they were in the year before. Sorry, you move, you change schools. Again, another state requirement that the state doesn't pay for. And here's a little story that Governor, Oregon Governor Kate Brown should take note of and Washington Governor Jay Inslee should also take note of. 53-year-old Jack Waldrop has a history of violence. In March 1998, he strangled and beat his then-girlfriend Angela Walker to death. A jury found him guilty of manslaughter, and he served 21 years in an Oregon state prison for the crime. After being released from prison, Waldrop made his way to Washington and began to date a 63-year-old woman. He now stands accused of kidnapping and assaulting in Benton County on March 11, 2022. She escaped by locking herself in a gas station bathroom, after which he fled. Four days after her escape, Mendocino County Sheriff's deputies were patrolling Sherwood Road near Willits, California, when they noticed a pickup truck idling on the shoulder, protruding into the southbound lane. Little did deputies know the driver who drove away and led Mendocino County lawmen on a 12-mile vehicle pursuit was Waldrop, the convicted murderer who had allegedly assaulted and kidnapped his girlfriend just days before. He allegedly told the woman she was going to die today while he had her in custody. The two fought. She fell out of the truck and Waldrop stomped on her, pulling her hair and punched her back. Then while driving from Yakima to Snoqualmie Pass, Waldrop continued to threaten and backhand her. They eventually stopped at an Ellensburg gas station where he ordered her to get herself cleaned up. Instead, she took the opportunity to lock herself in the bathroom. When Waldrop began to yell for her, other shoppers intervened and he drove away. Now Waldrop is back in Washington State where he pled not guilty to the kidnapping and assault charges in Benton County Superior Court. His trial will begin June 13th. Ah, but these governors and Democrats believe these people can change. The guy served 21 years for murder and he he changed, right? Take note, Kate Brown, you like to release killers from prison and this is what happens. And Oregon schools are returning to mask requirements. Oregon's education and health departments are issuing a new school health advisory for continuity of instruction. 
The new advisory insists schools use their layered approach of preventative measures, including masks, to retain in-person for the balance of the school year. The advisory says a pre-pandemic protocol for respiratory disease outbreak is in place with the state experiencing a respiratory illness increase as people relax pandemic guidelines. This advisory is in effect from today through August 31st, 2022. ODE and OHA says they are prioritizing safety protocols needed to continue full-time in-person school for all students. And we know our students learn best in person where they have access to critical support and services. Today's advisory is a direct response to a change in CDC community levels in six Oregon counties during the past two weeks and a rise in respiratory disease. Backtracking. It's coming back to the entire West Coast, I guarantee it. Laguna Woods, California, a man opened fire during a lunch reception at a Southern California church on Sunday, killing one person and wounding five senior citizens before being stopped and hogtied by parishioners in what a sheriff's official called an act of exceptional heroism and bravery. Four of the five people wounded suffered critical gunshot injuries during the violence. The suspect in the shooting, an Asian man in his 60s, was in custody and deputies recovered two handguns at the scene. No motive is known at this time. The church was mostly of Taiwanese descent. And no relief at the pump for Angelinos. The average price of a gallon of self-serve regular gasoline in Los Angeles County surpassed $6 for the first time since April 1st. The average price has risen for 18 consecutive days, increasing 23.9 cents. In the Beverly Grove area, it was well over $7 a gallon. Ouch. This has been Pacific Northwest Headline News. For more, visit BehindTheLinePodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Behind the Line Podcast, and this is Pacific Northwest Headline News for Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. This story is out of Washington. This is going to go a little long because I think it needs to be talked about. This is just a shining example of our criminal justice system in Washington and the laws that lawmakers make in Washington to cut criminals a break, no matter what they've done. A former Washington corrections officer who sexually assaulted four inmates at the city of Forks Jail in 2019 is out of prison after completing roughly 13 months of his 20-month sentence. John Gray was convicted of two felony and two misdemeanor counts of custodial sexual misconduct in December of 2020, was released from an Oregon corrections facility in late March, according to the Washington State Department of Corrections. He was let out of prison early because he accumulated earned release time, sentence reduction credits that are, by Washington law, awarded to all incarcerated people who participate in prison programs or show good behavior during their time behind bars. But even before his early release, Gray's 20-month prison sentence widely drew criticism from members of the public, victim advocates, and criminal justice experts who thought he should have faced a longer sentence. I think it sends a terrible message, said Dr. Craig Hemmons, a Washington State University criminal justice professor who studied nationwide penalties for corrections officers who commit sex crimes. I was shocked, very, very surprised to see such a low sentence for what appeared to be serial misconduct, serial sexual assault. 
Hemmons and other experts question why a man who preyed upon vulnerable women while holding authority over them didn't face tougher consequences, suspecting the guard faced lighter penalties because of the law enforcement profession he held. I don't think the sentence is appropriate, said Brenda Smith, an American University law professor and former member of the National Prison Rape Elimination Commission, who helped create the standards for governmental response to sexual victimization cases in custodial settings. The fact is, if those offenses occurred outside of a custodian, the sentence would have probably been higher. According to the Clallam County Court Records, Gray had sexual intercourse with two women and sexual contact with his other victims, including Holmes, who said the guard forced her to touch his crotch while she was alone with him in the jail library. Police investigators also found Gray paid bail for two of the four women after he sexually assaulted them. Michelle Devlin, chief criminal deputy prosecutor at the Clallam County Prosecutor's Office, recommended the 20-month sentence as part of Gray's plea deal. She said she offered him a deal after considering his four victims were in different emotional states and had varying abilities to testify. I have absolutely no regrets. I did my job. I met with every one of my survivors. I took into account their emotional well-being and what I had available to me, and this is what we ended up with, she said. I could have tried to push them over the edge, but I didn't think that was appropriate. The case went to trial and Gray was convicted on all his original felony charges under the state standard sentencing range. He could have faced up to five years in prison, should have been in prison for more than five years, according to court records. Devlin said she would have also requested the judge impose a higher sentence than what was typical. But the length of Gray's prison sentence wasn't solely in the prosecutor's hands. Here, Here is the problem. Here you can look at our state legislators. It was driven by a decades-old decision by the Washington State Legislature to set lighter penalties for sexual assault cases involving corrections officers compared with penalties for the most serious rape cases involving civilian offenders. What are you talking about? What idiot, what idiot legislator decided that would be a good thing to do? You've got somebody that's got custody over somebody and you're going to give them a lighter sentence for sexual assault. Who came up with this and why? The state is insane the way it treats criminals who abuse people. It just makes no sense. After the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office completed their investigation of the sexual assaults involving three of Gray's four victims, detectives determined they had probable cause to arrest him on multiple first- and second-degree counts of custodial sexual misconduct. For first-time offenders, the standard sentencing range for one felony conviction of the crime can range from 6 to 12 months in prison. But court records show detectives thought they also had the evidence to charge Gray with significantly more serious crime, two counts of second-degree rape. The crime is a Class A felony, and for first-time offenders, a conviction of one count typically carries a prison sentence of six prison sentence of six and a half to eight and a half years, which is what this guy should have got for each one of these counts. Investigators believe Gray raped his fourth victim, Morgan Lee, while he was transporting on an hours-long drive from Mason County to Forks Jail in September 2019. 
On two occasions during the trip, as Lee's arms were handcuffed and her feet were in shackles, Gray reached under her skirt and penetrated her with his finger, according to law enforcement and court records. Law enforcement referred Lee's case to the Clown County Prosecutor's Office, recommending prosecutors move forward with charges of second-degree rape. Devlin, the lead prosecutor, said she considered charging the state's rape statutes for each of the sexual assaults, but opted to go another route with the case. A prosecutor has an ethical obligation not to charge anything they don't believe they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, if detectives had evidence, there should have been proof. She said, so when I reviewed all the evidence, I decided that custodial sexual misconduct in the first degree was more proper charge. Some criminal justice experts who reviewed the facts of Gray's criminal case said they disagree with the prosecutor's decision not to pursue rape charges. They said charging second-degree rape would have made an important statement about the seriousness of the misconduct. You think? Devlin said she doesn't recall the specific factors that led her to decline to file second-degree rape charges because several years have passed since she prosecuted the case. Yeah. It's just insane to me that, you know, in my mind, and I, I was in law enforcement for nine years. This sounds to me like this prosecutor didn't care because the victims were inmates and I don't know what they were in prison for. It doesn't really matter. But my guess is she has that holier than thou attitude and doesn't really care because they're inmates, and so she didn't take that case seriously. This particular corrections officer had been in trouble for other things, too, before this came to light, so this guy had a pattern. He's probably a serial rapist. I'm sure these aren't his only four victims, and it's just pathetic that somebody like that would get 13 months, and now he's back in the community, and he'll be looking for other victims, more than likely, you know? When are we going to stop letting criminals rule the streets in the state of Washington? When are we going to tell Democrats, because it is Democrat policies that are doing this, that enough is enough? Washington doesn't take sexual assault and rape seriously. And you can see this by the 10,000 backlog of untested rape kits that the state crime lab is sitting on. And they say they're committed, a new law was passed to get these done in a more timely manner. And they say they're committed to cutting the wait time by 90% from 600 days to 45 days. 600 days? Why was it ever 600 days? That's unacceptable. This is a rape. And to go along with the whole soft on crime in Washington thing, article came out today, what Seattle Police Department's advice to you is if somebody breaks into your house, run, leave as soon as possible. Are you kidding me? Here's my advice to you. Buy a shotgun because it spreads the most when you pull the trigger. Point and shoot. This has been Pacific Northwest Headline News. For more, visit BehindTheLinePodcast.com. Be safe out there. Thanks for listening. This is the Behind the Line podcast, and this is Pacific Northwest Headline News for Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. 42 years ago at 8.32 in the morning, May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens, right here in Washington, 
erupts and becomes the deadliest and most destructive volcanic eruption in U.S. history. Where were you when it happened and how did that affect you, if you were alive when that happened? Well, our first little story is about a family from Washington and a little incident that occurred in our neighboring Oregon with a what Kate Brown would probably want you to believe is a reformed prisoner of the Oregon penal system. A family of five from Camas, Washington, was on the way home from Cannon Beach last month when a driver fired a gun into the car several times, nearly missing three children in the back seat, newly released court records show. The frightening encounter took place on the evening of April 6 on U.S. Highway 26 near the Northeast Brookwood Parkway exit in Hillsboro, according to an arrest warrant affidavit written by Hillsboro Police Officer Sufian Sher and filed in Washington County Circuit Court. A man and woman were in the front seat and their two sons, ages 9 and 11, and a daughter, 8, were in the back of the family's Ford Flex. The man told investigators that a Land Rover SUV was ahead of them when the driver stomped the brakes. As the cars were in the left lane heading towards Portland, the man said he drove onto the left-hand shoulder, passed the Range Rover, moved back into the left lane, and then merged into the right lane. The driver of the Range Rover kept pace with the family's car. The family's youngest child told investigators the Range Rover sneaked into our lane. The girl said she peeked into the other car and saw the man rolling down a window, and the first thing I saw was the gun. One of her brothers also saw it. The driver then fired at least four times at the family's car. No one was struck. The driver sped off, and investigators found four bullet holes from a small caliber gun in the victim's vehicle. Bullet fragments were removed from the driver's side door, cushions in the back seat, and the rear passenger door on the driver's side. Hillsboro police investigators said they later identified the motorist as Carl Ryan Anthony Sahi, 33, who, according to court documents, lives in a Pearl District apartment in Portland. Sahi appeared Monday in Washington County Circuit Court on allegations of attempted second-degree murder, felon in possession of a firearm, hmm, and unlawful use of a weapon. <clears throat> Say he was convicted in 2009 of robbery after he and another man held up the bar at the Colwood Golf Course on Northeast Columbia Boulevard in Portland. Say he and another man ordered the bartender to empty the till at gunpoint, then left him hogtied face down on a bathroom floor, authorities said. Say he was convicted of first degree robbery and second degree kidnapping. He was sentenced to nearly a decade in prison. During his sentencing hearing, Say he stuck out his tongue at his victim and winked and nodded when the victim asked during the proceeding if he planned to make a career out of crime. Well, apparently. <clears throat> the man whose car was shot on US-26 told investigators the violent encounter changed his life. His children suffer nightmares, his wife struggles with getting into the car to go anywhere, and he has trouble sleeping. But it's guys like this that Democrat politicians think once they've served their time, oh, they're reformed. They're regretful. They've changed. They won't do this stuff anymore when they get out, clearly. And more good news for Seattle. Seattle's Alki Beach and Golden Gardens will have reduced hours this summer. You know, because homeless, vagrants, and criminals run this city. 
The shortened hours are being tested by Seattle Parks and Recreation to address dangerous and or illegal behavior that has been reported in the summer evenings at the two parks. The beach hours will be from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. from May 27th to September 4th. Unless you're homeless, of course, then you can camp there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Seattle Park staff, assisted by SPD officers, will begin closing the beaches at 9.30 p.m. The reduced hours will be reviewed during a Board of Parks and Recreation Commission meeting after they are tested. Alki's hours were re uh, reduced last year following multiple violent incidents at the park and concerns about illegal activity. Some of the issues reported at the park during the busier summer months included violence, excessive noise, illegal fires, and unpermitted events. And, of course, there was multiple incidents at Golden Gardens, including uh, one person being shot and killed over fireworks. Starting September 5th, the hours at the two beaches will return to normal and be open 4 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. Yes, so apparently we're going to let the criminals and other types, homeless, etc., dictate what the rest of us normal people can do. Criminal defendants in the state of Oregon who have gone without legal representation for long periods of time amid a critical shortage of public defense attorneys filed a lawsuit Monday that alleges the state violated their constitutional right to legal counsel and a speedy trial. The complaint, which seeks class action status, was filed to state lawmakers and the Oregon Office of Public Defense Services struggle to address the huge shortage of public defenders statewide. The crisis has led to the dismissal of dozens of cases and left an estimated 500 defendants statewide, including several dozen in custody on serious felonies without legal representation. Crime victims are also impacted because cases are taking longer to reach resolution. A delay that experts say extends their trauma, weakens evidence, and erodes confidence in the justice system. The justice system, quote unquote, in Oregon, especially among low income and minority groups. There is a public defense crisis raging across this country, said Jason D. Williamson, executive director of the Center on Race, Inequality, and the Law at New York University School of Law, who helped prepare the filing. But Oregon is among only a handful of states that is now entirely depriving people of their constitutional right to counsel on a daily basis, leaving countless indigent defendants without access to an attorney for months at a time. The lawsuit specifically names Governor Kate Brown and Stephen Singer, the recently appointed executive director of the state's public defense agency and asked for a court injunction ordering criminal defendants to be released if they can't be provided with an attorney in a reasonable period of time. The lawsuit doesn't specify what would be considered reasonable. Oregon's system to provide attorneys for criminal defendants who can't afford them was underfunded and understaffed before COVID, but a significant slowdown in court activity during the pandemic pushed it to a breaking point. A backlog of cases is flooding the courts and defendants routinely are arraigned and then have their hearing dates postponed up to two months in the hopes a public defender will be available later. <sighs> These Democrat states are just inept at doing their jobs and they cry so often for these poor people's rights, you know, equity and social justice. But this directly affects those people they claim to care about the most, and they're doing nothing about it.
They have money to spend on all kinds of other garbage, but when it comes to your constitutional rights in court, I guess that gets a pass. Maybe they're just hoping the courts will let everybody out instead of prosecuting. The Greater Idaho Movement for Oregon, Eastern Oregon, doesn't seem to be doing so well according to results from Tuesday's primary. So far, nine counties of the 19 in the proposed Idaho annex are on board with taking a closer look at how the land's jurisdiction might be transferred from one state to another. Two more will vote on the question in November. The idea is to move Idaho's western border to include everything east of the Deschutes River, excluding the city of Bend, including portions of Deschutes, Jefferson, Wasco counties, and everything south of Lane County. The votes to approve in the nine counties are purely advisory, and it would take an act of both state legislatures and the blessing of the federal government to make it happen. Yeah, so in other words, it'll never happen. The movement is two years into its effort, but the feasibility of altering both states remains unclear. And California and its unconstitutional laws. A Los Angeles judge has ruled that California's landmark law requiring women on corporate boards is unconstitutional. No kidding. State Senator Leader Tony Atkins, a Democrat from San Diego, said the ruling was disappointing and a reminder that sometimes our legalities don't match our realities. More women on corporate boards means better decisions and businesses that outperform the competition, Atkins said in a statement. Uh, I don't think that is truly the case. The best people on the board is what creates that. We believe this law remains important despite the disheartening ruling. The decision comes just a month after another Los Angeles judge found that a California law mandating that corporations diversify their boards with members from certain racial, ethnic, or LGBT groups was also unconstitutional. Yes, California, we are not ruled by emotions in the judicial system. This has been Pacific Northwest Headline News. For more, visit BehindTheLinePodcast.com. Thanks for listening. This is the Behind the Line Podcast, and this is Pacific Northwest Headline News for Friday, May 20th, 2022. Drought is expected to impact much of the Pacific Northwest this summer, including areas throughout eastern Washington, southern Oregon, and southern Idaho. Despite a report from the Yakima Herald Republic stating that Washington and Oregon recorded above-normal precipitation levels in April, a recent map from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows that 54% of Washington state is experiencing abnormally dry conditions that could lead to severe drought. State climatology experts predict it will be warmer and drier than usual this summer. Last summer, Governor Jay Inslee announced a first-of-its-kind statewide drought emergency. He loves his emergencies. After a historic heat wave swept across the region in June 2021. Oh, it's going to be a great summer, isn't it? Sunnyside, Washington, a 13-year-old boy is accused of shooting five people during Sunnyside's Cinco de Mayo Festival. The 13-year-old, who Sunnyside police described as a Sereno gang member, is being held at the Yakima County Juvenile Justice Center on suspicion of five counts of first-degree assault in connection with the May 6th incident. Bail's been set at $500,000. It's a gang-related shooting in the middle of a crowd of people at the Cinco de Mayo Festival, the prosecutor said. The entire festival was shut down because of the shooting. A witness told Sunnyside Police that he saw the suspect and the other Sereno gang members who were laughing and looking at a group dressed in red attire at the festival. 
The suspect then pulled a handgun from his waistband, pointed at the group wearing red, and opened fire. Red is a color police say is typically associated with the Norteño street gangs. Five people were hit, including a 35-year-old man who was struck in the leg, a 12-year-old boy who was hit in the bottom lip and tongue, a 6-year-old girl in the lower leg, and two boys, ages 16 and 14, who were shot in the legs. The 16- and 14-year-old had possible gang connections, the affidavit said. Yep, eastern Washington has major gang problems. Once again, you can thank state Democratic leaders for incidents like this that are occurring around the state. And Seattle School District has demoted Cleveland High School principal after she told families did the district would limit contact tracing. Principal Catherine Brown's 18-year run working at Cleveland High School is coming to an end this summer. The reason, her attorney says, she informed families of a plan to scale back COVID-19 contact tracing in Seattle schools, something district officials ordered her not to do. After an investigation, district officials decided to end Brown's principal contract effective June 30th. They have also demoted her to a lower role, sought her reassignment to a different school, and are recommending a five-day suspension, according to Shannon McMinnemy, Brown's attorney. This is the most severe discipline I've seen imposed on an 18-year employee, a principal with no past record for insubordination or failing to follow a directive. On Thursday evening, the district would not confirm any part of Brown's account or answer questions about contact tracing. It is our standard practice to not discuss personal personnel matters out of respect for all involved, Seattle Public Schools spokesperson wrote in an email. And they've already got somebody else they're going to put in her place, and of course that's going to be somebody that will toe the line and do exactly what the woke Seattle School District wants them to do. Welcome to Equitable and Inclusive Seattle. Seattle mortgage payments are up 58.5% since last year. But officials say housing market isn't slowing down. Despite the cost of mortgage payments surging and rates climbing rapidly, housing prices continue to rise in Seattle and throughout the country. According to Seattle-based Zillow's latest marketing report, the monthly payment on a typical home in the Seattle metro area is $3,394 a month assuming a 30-year mortgage with a 20% down payment, up 58.5% from a year ago. The same typical home is worth $791,933 in the Seattle area, up 25.7% year over year. Rent has also increased by 16% last year, according to Zillow, with the Seattle area's typical rent sitting at $2,206 a month. It's all coming to a head, folks. Portland, Oregon police shared new data about fentanyl showing just how widespread and dangerous it is. Already almost half of the 58 overdose deaths in Portland this year are suspected to be from fentanyl. Fentanyl is extremely potent, usually blue in color and referred to as M30s in pill form, made to look like common pharmaceutical drugs like oxycodone or Xanax. Police said drug cartels want people to get hooked on this because it's so cheap for them to make, but the problem is people are mistakenly buying it thinking they're getting another drug and just a little bit can be deadly. One kilogram costs $1,000 to purchase and has the potential to kill half a million people. 
Since last summer, the Portland Police Bureau Narcotics and Organized Crime Unit has seized nearly 570,000 fentanyl, fentanyl pills and more than 4,000 grams of powder. Yep, but Oregon has legalized drugs, and that seems to be working out really well for them, doesn't it? Last year, 11 kids younger than 17 and more than 50 people aged 18 to 24 died from fentanyl in Oregon. But just keep legalizing that garbage. Keep telling your population that it's okay to use drugs. And here's a shocking problem. Thousands of ballots with blurry barcodes that can't be read by vote counting machines will delay results by weeks in a key U.S. House race in Oregon's primary election. A shocking development that is giving a black eye to a vote-by-mail pioneer state with a national reputation as a leader on voter access and equity. The fiasco affects up to 60,000 ballots or two-thirds of the roughly 90,000 returns so far. In Oregon's third largest county, hundreds of ballots are still coming in under a new law that allows them to be counted as long as they are postmarked by Election Day. And 200 Clackamas County employees were getting a crash course Thursday in vote counting after being redeployed to address the crisis. Elections workers must pull the faulty ballots from the batches of 125, transfer the voters' intent to a fresh ballot, then double-check their entries. That's right, they're going to rewrite your ballot. A painstaking process that could draw the election out till June 13th when Oregon certifies its vote. The workers operate in pairs, one Democrat, one Republican, in two shifts of 11 hours a day. The debacle has stunned Oregon, really, where all ballots have been cast only by mail for 23 years, and lawmakers have consistently pushed to expand voter access through automatic voter registration, expanded deadlines, and other measures. Because Americans are super freaking lazy and just can't go down to a voting booth and use a card that can't be misread. It's also thrown into question a key U.S. House race in a redrawn district that includes a large portion of Clackamas County, which stretches nearly 2,000 square miles from Portland's liberal southern suburbs to rural conservative communities on the flanks of Mount Hood. It just, yep, we need to go back to the old way of doing voting. This online voting, this mail-in voting, Using computers, it doesn't work. This next story is heartbreaking, and I've been to two of these calls myself as a police officer. A toddler was transported to the hospital in critical condition after he was hit by his father's vehicle Wednesday afternoon in Riverside, California. According to a spokesperson for the California Highway Patrol, the toddler's father was pulling into his driveway after coming home from work. He waited for the home's gate to fully open before pulling into the driveway. As he drove forward, the man in the vehicle said he felt a bump. When he got out of the car, he discovered that his toddler's son had been run over by the tire. The child was taken to Riverside University. Health System <clears throat> Medical Center. Wow, sorry, that uh, still bothers me. Uh, was taken to the University Health Center where he passed away. That is something you will never unsee. If you have small children, just... Be extra careful. I reported in an earlier report about a Washington corrections officer raping three, four women that were in his custody. Now in Los Angeles, a federal corrections officer who worked at the main jail 
has agreed to plead guilty to sexually assaulting a female inmate who was in an isolation cell recovering from COVID-19. Jose Vera could face a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison when he's sentenced later this year. According to the plea agreement obtained by the news station, Vieira got into bed with the inmate at the Metropolitan Detention Center, fondled her body, and penetrated her in December 2020. He lied about the nature of the incident when he was interviewed by the FBI. Vieira, a U.S. Bureau of Prisons employee, agreed to plead guilty to a single charge of depriving the woman of her rights under the color of law. It was not clear if Vieira was being held in jail. Not sure why he's not being charged with rape but hopefully he gets the 10 years that he has coming to him. This has been Pacific Northwest Headline News. For more, visit BehindTheLinePodcast.com. Have a safe weekend. See you Monday.